0: This is Hans Reimer, Montgomery County Councilmember, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties.
1: Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are back to recording remotely via Skype. We were in the office last week, but we have a special guest today, so we'll talk about that in a second. But how's everything going in the Sanderson household?
2: Everybody's okay here. How about your show?
1: Doing very well, thank you. And I mentioned a special guest. We're very happy today to have with us Graham Kanaus from CSAC, that is the California State Association of Counties. Michael, I'll let you go ahead and introduce Graham and talk about what we're gonna to do today on the podcast.
2: Well, we we felt like it was, it was time for something a little bit different. We've had several weeks where we focused on, you know, all these public health and economic and political and practical issues in Maryland, um, you know, which is our want, that is our beat, but um, it felt like an opportunity to reach outside our state bounds. And uh, actually there were a couple policy issues that you and I were exchanging notes about, both of them originating in California. And I said, well, you know, I've got a friend in California. We've got a sister association in California. Let's get them plugged in, bring them on the Maryland podcast, and we can have sort of like an East Coast, West Coast chit-chat. I mean, I don't think this needs to be a rat battle. That's sort of what's going on now on the Internet and that sort of thing. This doesn't need to get that serious, but I do very much like the idea – of, of having Graham on, Graham Canales is the executive director of the California State Association of Counties. That's Mako's counterpart on the big state on the West Coast. Um, they've got a variety of similarities and many differences to Maryland. But Graham, thanks so much for joining us, and glad to have you with us. Great to join you, Michael
0: and Kevin. Uh, really thrilled for this opportunity. It's great to connect with folks that are on the other side of the country. And uh, as you highlighted, have both similarities and some differences. Uh, CSAC has been around for over 100 years, 125 years, as a matter of fact. So we're in the same building that we started in uh, back <laughs> when people went around on horses. Uh, and so the world has certainly changed around us, but uh, I've been fortunate to be in and around counties for 20 years, almost by accident. And uh, CSAC, much like uh, the work you do back there, is very focused on advocacy and communications. But we, there's a couple other elements of what we do uh, that are interesting as well, uh, particularly on the education side of the house, where for a dozen years, we've had a, uh, a county leadership Institute uh, that's got 90 courses in five different locations and then we offer a number hmm. of business services infrastructure financing property tax payment and uh, other things to uh, keep the county enterprise moving
2: along so it sounds like a follow-up conversation maybe with you and your leadership and some of the Maryland Board of directors and elected leaders might be in order to talk about you know some of the lessons we could learn from from your your sort of big footprint association. I think there's there's always benefit in that sort of thing. But, but for today's purposes, we wanted to talk a little bit about policy issues and, and politics, the kind of lane that this, this podcast has has gotten into. So actually, can you give us a little perspective? I'll, I'll share with you in, in the state of Maryland County, governments are pretty close to full service local governments for most of our residents. Compared to other states, we have relatively few incorporated municipalities. Uh, our school districts don't have their own taxing authority. So quite a lot of Marylanders, public services, you know, we pick up the trash. We take care of the roads. We plow the streets. Plowing the streets, by the way, it's California. You're not big <laughs> into that, but like we occasionally get <laughs> snow, that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, we we fund education in libraries, community colleges, health departments, all that kind of stuff. So we're almost soup to nuts. Can you give our Maryland listeners a sort of framework of, what what do the elected officials in California counties have responsibility for? Is that a mixed bag, or is it is it different from what we do here? California is very similar in terms of the the breadth of
0: services. I think we're each uh, uh, two of twelve states that have such a broad scope of services. But we do have four hundred eighty two cities in California that do municipal services within their boundaries. Counties oh. do it in the unincorporated area, and then the broad scope of health and human services, uh, public safety, uh, and uh, of course, all the uh, property tax assessment, um, district attorney uh, type of function. So we're elections, of course. So we're very broad in that way. Um, we're, we have nonpartisan uh, elections at the supervisor level and are known as being very urban. You know, with 40 million people, you're going to get that. But uh, more than half of the counties are actually very rural in nature. So we have a very different uh, and diverse breakdown of counties
2: within uh, California. Your membership includes Los Angeles County, which is, I think, the most populous county in the United States. Is that right? It is. They've got more than 10 million people. And every county has the same, with the exception of San
0: Francisco, has the same five number of supervisors, whether they are as small as Alpine with 1,200 people or Los Angeles County with 10 million. And so if you're a supervisor in Los Angeles, you represent 2 million people, which is more than any state senator or state assembly member uh, here in California. (laughs)
1: We we have about six million people total here in Maryland. So four million more (laughs) just in one county alone in Los Angeles County. But Graham, it does sound like, you know, we're talking about a lot of the same services here that you provide that also Maryland counties provide Our 24 counties here in Maryland. Counties are on the front lines. And I think that can bring us right into our first topic of discussion, which everyone is talking about. And that's COVID-19. We've talked a lot about the numbers here in Maryland, some of the stuff that's going on here in terms of our trend lines. I guess the first question to you is, how are things looking in California? How is, how is your curve looking? Are you flattening the curve? You know, we can talk about what you're doing with schools, elections, but overall, what's going on in California when it comes to COVID?
0: Well, California led the nation on the front end of this in terms of flattening our curve and largely clamping down uh, and having a stay-at-home order actually a number of counties put in place first. Uh, and then we began to open up. And, you know, the world is very different in urban areas with highly, high concentrations of people and those that are in very rural areas. And we've really, really struggled over the last uh, couple of months. And so we've had a number of outbreaks. All said, we've had about 600,000 cases in California and over 11,000 deaths that have occurred. Things have begun to turn with a statewide mask requirement, with testing of uh, over 100,000 folks a day, and what's now been a more than 20 percent decline in hospitalizations and in cases, Uh, but it's a huge, huge challenge. Compliance is a challenge, and exactly the right course of action is a challenge as well with the balance between uh, public health and uh, economic stability.
2: Every bit of that sounds familiar. I mean, the timetables are a little different place by place, but uh, all of those challenges, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're the only you know, states that are, that are facing that, but that array of, of public service challenges is really what's facing and, and confounding uh, just about everyone. You have a statewide a mask requirement? Is that like in all indoor areas? Does it extend outdoors as well at at public gatherings? Gatherings are prohibited outright. uh, So no gatherings are currently
0: permissible. Uh, The mask mandate is required indoors and outdoors to the degree that social distance cannot be accommodated. Uh, And enforcement is largely left to counties who have a challenge of Without, a, without sufficient enforcement in the eyes of the state, we have about a billion dollars that is at risk. And so we're, we've got funding linked to the degree to which we are sufficiently enforcing in the eyes of the state, which is a very delicate conversation and struggle point for
1: counties. In terms of the mask mandate, I mean, I think Michael said it. We, we have that here, too. I'm interested, in California, is it more so the state sets the floor and then your counties can go above and beyond when it, when it comes to what the state says must happen? Can counties go further if they choose to do so?
0: Yes, and that's actually how we began, where we had uh, six counties in the Bay Area that had a, a stay-at-home order that was in place uh, prior to the state. And so, essentially, it's the most restrictive structure Uh, and language that is put in place, whether it's coming from the state or from uh, counties. The challenge, and you probably talk about this in Maryland uh, as well, is that you have a statewide order that is fairly restrictive and applies the same in a county with 1,200 people as it does in counties with millions and millions of people who can't socially distance in the same way. And that has created
2: major uh, pushback in uh, different communities within California. I can imagine that being a real challenge. You probably have a more limited component that we face here. Maryland is really compact geographically, and almost everybody who lives in the state of Maryland is within a relatively comfortable automobile drive to another state that might have more lax or more per- permissive laws. So uh, we end up with an added pressure here where there's a cross-border effect. It's like, well, you know, right over there in Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Delaware, they're doing things different. You know, how come my, my restaurant can't open and theirs can? That's not fair. I'm losing business. This policy debate is like the onion that has unlimited layers to peel, retrying old analogies from prior podcasts. There is definitely a lot of onion to peel.
0: Because of the complicated way that it is set up, there are there are different rules depending upon when you had an outbreak, and so you so you can we don't have the the cross state issue to the degree that Maryland does, but we have a cross county issue um, where if you were a county that was that had a bigger outbreak earlier in the process and you've made substantial progress. You're able to do much more than a county that uh, had that same outbreak occur, but much more recently. And, and so there is a uh, you know, movement of people that is not allowed under the state order, but is happening given the practical uh, struggle that exists after months of folks being uh, stuck at home.
1: That's fascinating. A lot of moving parts. And I think it's fair to say when it comes to COVID, probably the two biggest issues here in Maryland are reopening schools or bringing kids back to school, whether that be virtually or in person and elections. So, first of all, Graham, what is it looking like in California when it comes to reopening schools, whether it be virtual or in-person? Is that a local decision with the local school boards? I'm assuming we're talking about a similar role here in in Maryland where you have school boards that make those decisions. But are most of them deciding they're going to go virtual, or is it really an urban and rural issue in California?
0: There's a decision to be made around in-person learning for a K-6 level only. Uh, beyond that, it is distance learning. The k six potential is limited depending upon whether you are a, uh, a county of concern that's on a watch list um, uh, where it's uh, virtually impossible. Or if you're a county um, that is uh, in better in a better position um, in terms of what's happening with your uh, cases and hospitalizations, in which case you can do a waiver on a school by school basis. The vast majority of public schools in California have nearly all distance learning that has occurred, that is occurring. There are some that have those waivers that have a hybrid model. And there are private schools that have been the primary ones that are pushing for in person learning because they typically have much more space and an ability to uh, put that in place, you know, with a much smaller population that they're working with
2: we we actually had a really challenging policy flare up when we had one of our largest our largest county in Maryland challenged their their community of private schools and said we think under our health authority delegated by the state we don't think you can conduct any in person schools public or private and that turned into about a two week legal dust-up, you know, it look like it was going to go to federal court and become a really big deal. The, the county ended up withdrawing that order, but this was a big, you know, looming as a, wow, state versus county versus health department, which here is a weird hybrid, and where, to, where do uh, private and religious schools fit in? So that probably would have been its own podcast for this week had it not been sort of set aside by by the county pulling back. But, you know, a lot of these issues are challenging.
0: Yeah, well, we and it's the county public health officer here in California that has that level of authority locally. And this is very much a live struggle from a policy perspective. And there is a major push on this uh, loosening the state's health order to provide more flexibility uh, at a local level for communities that may be more ready to be able to do
1: in-person learning. Sounds pretty similar to to here in Maryland. Our jurisdictions, our local school boards, I think all have said they're going to start, at least in the fall, with virtual learning. The other big issue here, Graham, is elections, and I am certain it is a big issue in California as well. Here in Maryland, for the primary election, we mailed every voter a ballot. Now, for the general election, we're actually mailing ballot applications and so you could get an application and then request a ballot. We're also going to have a number of vote centers across the state where people can vote in person. How are things looking in California? What what does it look like? What's the setup going to be for the November election?
0: Our setup actually is going to be very similar to what you just described for for Maryland. We do have an executive order that was put out by the governor earlier in the outbreak that requires an all mail ballot election. Um, that was immediately challenged in court. And then the legislature, which had been primarily working remotely themselves, passed an urgency bill to put in statute an all mail election, all-male ballot election. And so that's the model that we're going to have for our upcoming uh, November 3rd general election. There will be some uh, opportunity for folks to vote in person, particularly those uh, that have disabilities uh, or other challenges. And a number of drop-off centers uh, that folks can utilize. We are two years into a voting center model and shifting away from uh, polling places. And that voting center model has been very successful in increasing participation of registered voters. So this kind of fast tracks that into the all-mail ballot uh, election model in a number of counties that we're seeking to, you know, move. Uh, more quickly beyond the the archaic in some in some cases uh, old
2: polling place model i guess the difference in the two though is we've taken a step back our 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 june primary we did basically like your model um, all mail with an opportunity. If you need to vote in person, you still have limited places to do that. But we're shifting backwards. That all you get automatically is an application, and then you can send it in. So we don't know whether you know 15% or 30% or 50% of voters will take the time to you know read through the mail, read that document, decide to fill it out and send it in, then get their ballot and, and send that in. So we're kind of preparing for quite a lot of voters to need something on election day or the week or so leading up when we have an early voting window. So we're gonna do a little bit of everything and it's been it's been a hybrid. We've been sort of layering together piece by piece over the last month or so.
0: That's really interesting. One of the primary drivers for us not doing that and rather going all mail ballot election was that the polling workers themselves are the most at-risk population related to COVID-19. They're generally retired, um, you know, much, much older with underlying health conditions, but with a a passion for uh, supporting elections in our democracy. And those folks we cannot have in a position where they are at extreme risk uh, around uh, COVID. And so that made the decision to move to an all-male ballot election much easier and it'll be interesting to see how your how your participation uh, may change from what you did in June compared to what you're going to be doing in the general election.
2: Kevin is the lead for us on on election issues and I'm sure he's sort of checking mental boxes that everything you just said about the debate there very <laughs> present in the debate here as we've been, you know, hammering out exactly what the best way to do this is and how do you how do you avoid long lines that might endanger voters? How do you have large how do you avoid large crowds that might endanger the election judges and volunteers and so forth? There's there's no perfect way to do any of this, I guess. But it's it's one of those things that you don't think of first, but once you start thinking about it, boy, you're stuck.
1: Right. And even just to get, you know, the adequate amount of personal protective equipment. And I know you mentioned, you know, you've been on the vote center model for a while, but we are still on the precinct model. We're gonna try vote centers, but there were a lot of challenges even trying to make sure that we had hand sanitizer in all the precincts. So we'll see how it goes and hopefully things go well in California as well as here in Maryland. But how about your offices? Um, are, are you all back in the office at CSAC? Are you working from home? What's the setup looking like with your association?
0: Well, we uh, sent the whole staff home March 17th um, when our state, uh, statewide order was put in place and came back briefly in June. And so there was a few weeks where we had a, uh, we had a staggered schedule for, for about a third of the staff and the rest continued to work remotely. And then went back to nearly the full team working remotely and folks only going in for uh, critical things like running payroll. We envisioned that we will continue to do that for quite some time. And I after struggling for several weeks to figure out how to work at home with uh, three kids and a wife who also <laughs> works from home, um, have a setup that now I prefer to go into the office. Um, so I'm actually now more productive in it. Uh, and we're probably going to have permanent changes to our approach to telework uh, that will come out of this. And the same is occurring in a number of counties considering the challenge around telework that uh, has been tested. Uh, and right. some of the concerns, I think, have been debunked and others have been uh, validated, I think, as we've gone through the last several months.
2: I, I think that's well said. We've we've ended up, as we've recorded a podcast every week, even through this pandemics period, I mean, we, we've ended up talking about coronavirus this and that and it, it's in the background of topics that even nominally aren't about it, but we've ended up with this running theme of the things that are going to change once, quote-unquote, all this it, is behind us. And, you know, okay, fine, we're not going to do social handshaking anymore, fine. We're going to get rid of buffet restaurants, oh yeah, probably. But, yeah, I think I think the idea of teleworking as a norm and a reasonable expectation for employers and employees has got to be one of the things that we'll all have a, a sea change on. I don't know what that means for commercial real estate. <laughs> I mean, at, at some point, you <laughs> have to think those, those of us whose members rely on property taxes to deliver essential services, eventually we'll have a reckoning there. Uh, but in the short term, both for county governments and for folks like us running associations, uh, people working remotely and that being not as enormous a management challenge as we might have guessed, it's a revelation, I think. You know, I was the
0: the leading voice to kill telework when I was in a county, <laughs> and, and now I'm an advocate for targeted telework, recognizing that uh, it, it is working incredibly well for about two-thirds of our team, and the other third are struggling with workload, or it's not the right fit, or what have you, but it's a model that uh, where some employees actually perform way higher than they were before because it removes some of the logistics challenges that may have been in place.
1: Yeah, I mean, and speaking of logistic challenges, I-, I agree with both of you that some of the fears, if you will, about telework have been debunked. But I am sure you, as we are here in Maryland, are dealing with the issue not only with telework, but also with schools about high speed Internet access. And I know you have a number of rural areas in California. I mean, has that really you know, come to the forefront in terms of COVID-19? And, and really, has that illuminated the issue of lack of access to high speed Internet across California or in certain areas? Well, it
0: has. And what it's really done is it, it's provided a, a political leverage opportunity to make progress in those rural communities. Two-thirds of our legislature doesn't represent any rural area, given that it's population-based. And there's now awareness of it because it's relevant, really, in every community in California. Uh, I'm in a quasi-urban area, and even here, the distance learning in our first week of school has—the uh, system has crashed repeatedly— uh, because there are challenges on the, in in the school itself and with the community being able to have access, that's a huge, huge problem in in rural California and we're now making progress and we're making progress in a in actually in a business opportunity way uh, with some of our uh, colleagues in California on how to leverage infrastructure projects to fast track. Uh, broadband and to do so almost working around the telecompanies in terms of having to walk through their front door and instead kind of creating our own new door that can
2: expedite getting broadband to communities that have needed it for many, many years. Once again, it, it, like the issues you're raising sound extremely familiar to, to Maryland. And uh, I, I would I would add Everybody's first blush is that rural communities are deeply underserved, and and that's that's just a matter of record in our state. I'm sure it is in your state. Um, I think it's been illuminating to many Marylanders, at least, relatively expansive pockets of developed urban areas that themselves are underserved basically by choices of service providers that that as companies who you know provide internet service and and whatnot, to the extent that they are not state regulated here and they don't have formal franchise agreements in the way that cable television does and so forth, um, you end up with, okay, we've picked these seven neighborhoods, we're going to expand service, and we think there's a you know there's a there's a body of consumer interest there. But we're not going to make the infrastructure investment to get into that community or that one or that one, and seeing those pockets show up where those kids need to access, and we need to be able to get library materials, and we need to be able to, to you know, to do telelearning and telemedicine and so forth. Um, suddenly, that has become a more acute concern than even six and twelve months ago. That's perfectly put for the telecompanies serving one.
0: One property in a zip code is sufficient, and if it if there's no market driver to do anything more than that, then they don't have to do so um, and then cherry pick in in markets, which is i mean that's what a private market system is. um but there's the overriding public interest in ensuring that there's broadband access across the board then gets lost in that. so we're there is progress that is being made that we've up to this point not been able to make previously that should have a marked change on economic opportunity in rural communities. It'll just take a few years before it all actually lands.
2: I think that sounds really similar to where we are. Um, Our state legislature convenes a regular session each January for 90 days our association is in the process of trying to identify top issues that our membership is calling for. And uh, this is a rapid riser on that list that communities are saying, you know, if, if we're going to have remote schooling and we're going to have tons of people teleworking, we, we just can't go with We can't be driving the kids to the, to the parking lot outside the library for an hour a day so they can they can dial into their class. You just can't make that be your educational framework. So should we swap uh, approaches to the legislative session since ours are a s- block a solid 8 months every year? Um, no deal. What? Not we, we won't even <laughs> take like a player to be named later to make that work. No, I, I don't see any way to make that trade work, sorry. Yeah, not,
1: <laughs> not even for not, a couple 90 day, 90
2: days and they go home. Oh no, we we like that a lot. <laughs>
1: Let's shift now to some some federal issues. We've talked a lot on here about how Washington, D.C. has responded to this pandemic. And, you know, when it comes to federal funding, we know about the CARES Act. And here in Maryland, I think we have been successful in working with the state, making sure that the state distributed the CARES money down to the county level what's it looking like in California? Are you all struggling with, you know, getting that CARES funding from the state to your individual counties? Has that been a process for you or has that money been allocated across the board? I know that's a big part of the discussion now as they debate another relief bill is we have a lot of states that haven't even distributed their CARES funding. At least that's the talking point. What are things looking like in California when it comes to to federal funds and, and getting those funds from the state to the local level?
0: Well, I would say we are a failed success, which is to say, um, more than half of the coronavirus relief fund dollars are going to local government in California. Forty percent of that is going to is going to counties, so that's awesome for those that received direct funding. Counties that received direct funding, and there are sixteen of them in California, um, they've all gotten those dollars. The remaining forty-two counties just two weeks ago received their first dollar of those CRF funds. We had to fight for that in the state budget. We got it. And that's great. But those dollars are being metered out over this uh, threat that I referenced earlier in terms of enforcement, that if enforcement is not done, or if an action is taken by a county that is public and that is considered in blatant violation of the state's order, then they don't receive their funding. And that is done on a month to month basis. And so there's multiple levels of monthly certifications that are required in order for the dollars that are being held for us um, actually flow uh, at the same time that the expenditure authority ends at the end of December. And so we're at great risk of sending money back to D.C. because we have this overly cute uh model of uh, metering the dollars out the door
2: wow that's that's a really hands-on forgive me for being blunt but
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's very heavy-handed there's no there's no way around it uh and um and there are those that of the 58 counties there are those that are banking that those do- dollars would ultimately flow because they're not going to do anything in violation of a state order, right. and there are those where there's enough gray, and there's so much change in the how the state interprets its own order, kind of like the treasury reinterpreting the use of the CARES dollars, <laughs> that it's it there a county could pretty easily get to a place of full intent to comply and yet still be out of compliance so we're fortunate that no county has had their dollars withheld there are two cities and a handful more that are uh, that have either lost funds or um are on the cusp of losing funds um but counties we have been held together at least uh, thus far uh, through this process Yikes. yeah
1: I- I mean- Yikes. Yikes is a good way to put it for sure. Um, Man. So, you know, speaking of the feds, we are, as I'm sure you are, pushing as NACO is, the National Association, for this next round of COVID-19 relief aid to include direct and flexible funding for county governments. We are hoping that D.C. gets their act together Who knows? We have an election coming up. There are are a lot of moving pieces when it comes to what's happening in Washington. I know you all have been pushing hard. You have a really, really robust social media presence. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But you know, what what are you all doing to sort of get the word out? I mean, when it comes to big hitters, you know, in D.C., you all have the, the speaker of the House. You have Kamala Harris, who, of course, is the vice presidential nominee with Joe Biden. So you have big hitters. I mean, what are you all doing? How are you working with your delegation to get that word out uh, for the necessity for this money to flow directly down to counties who, again, just like in Maryland, are on the front lines of this pandemic?
0: Yeah, well, we're fortunate that we do have some power hitters. And uh, Kamala Harris, our governor, former mayor of San Francisco, and the speaker, also former mayor of San Francisco, are all very close. And so that is helpful for us. We've been working closely with uh, all of them, certainly coordinating with the governor's office. We've uh, recently uh, pulled together with our city counterparts to do a joint letter, local government letter, um, to move things along. Um, and have been supporting the the Heroes Act that was passed in the House, and want to push the uh, Senate to a place of recognizing the great importance of state and local government receiving funding. So we we certainly continue to do that. We've been going directly to the media and using our media network both for uh, news stories and for uh, and for op eds to help uh, fuel it. Our congressional delegation in California, the fifty four members. There are only a handful that uh, can be most helpful on the conservative side of the aisle and, and to work with them as um, closely as we, we can, given that they tip, they represent the counties that are actually most in need of additional funds. The The point about our dollars being metered, metered um, our existing CARES Act dollars being metered is a significant one because... It has the potential to undercut our argument about what we actually need because we can't show expenditures on the books, even though counties are depleting their reserves in order to respond to the pandemic.
2: Right, right. Sounds uh, familiar with a number of our colleagues across the country that the, the question of funds being distributed and allocated as opposed to, quote unquote, spent. Is a sort of eye of the beholder definition problem, but that has become a communications problem with with Congress, I think, in, in writ large. Yeah, I mean, we're
0: we're fortunate in that we live our world is about working in the middle of the political spectrum, and so we have strong relationships across the board, um, which is how we get things done. And I'm sure that's true in Maryland as well. So, notwithstanding the fact that California is overwhelmingly a blue state, um, our membership is. Uh, probably split right right down the middle. And so um, making compelling arguments to folks all across the spectrum in D.C., making clear that this is not a political issue and solutions can come from any direction and we're down with them. Um, but uh, our role is to hold communities together and county's ability to do that in California has been severely diminished and is in incredible jeopardy without having some additional um, dollars uh, to come and fund what is a massive increase in responsibility, both because of the public health, but also because we've had um, substantial shifts from the state to counties of increased responsibility for the homeless in public safety in a number of areas during this um, outbreak and the response to it that have made our costs shoot through the roof in a way that we've never seen before.
1: That's very well said and well put. So I think that's a good place to leave it now. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the gig economy. There is always big news that comes out of California when it comes to the gig economy. We'll talk about California's ballot questions tradition. Very interesting. And we'll get into something that we're not dealing with here in Maryland. Wildfires, rolling blackouts in the midst of the pandemic. We'll talk about how they're dealing with that. All that and more after the break.
0: Stuck inside
2: and feeling helpless about the coronavirus? Wish you could do more to help? Well, here's a simple step that can make a difference for the next 10 years. Just fill out your census at 2020census.gov. The census determines how many vaccines we get, how many hospital beds, and how many school lunches. The more people complete their census, the more federal funding we get for all of those things. Please go to 2020census.gov right now
0: and complete your census. That's 2020census.gov
1: welcome back to the conduit street podcast kevin canale back here with michael sanderson and we have the executive director of the california state association of counties graham canaus with us graham we often talk on here about how new technology drives new policy and we've talked before about the gig economy california right now is making waves for a push to treat 1099 contractors like employees it is a big pivot for companies like uber and lyft and others who are trying to fill those non traditional income activities, even if it isn't a central issue for county governments, is this really more of a state issue? Or, I mean, we, we find it to be a fascinating story and, and we got you on the line here. So, what are you hearing out there? What's going on when it comes to this big fight with Uber, Lyft, and the state of California?
0: Well, it's definitely an area uh, that is fascinating and evolving. It's not one that we are directly involved in. Um, as uh, counties or as an association, but there are uh, substantial implications to the approach to work, which is in a huge state of flux. Is part market based, Uber and Lyft and what they've and DoorDash, but also part politically driven in terms of legislation here. And so there, there is a there, um, there was a bill that required. Um, you know, moving folks uh, to be considered as employees instead of contractors. There was immediate litigation that was unsuccessful around that, um, and uh, I would say the public and the workers are kind of split on this issue in California. There will be a referendum on, on our, at our November 3rd election specifically on this issue, and Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash have pledged 100 million dollars to fight this off uh, at the ballot so it's a major high stakes uh, political uh, political fight uh, over uh, how employees are going to be classified and have huge or or contractors and have huge implications on
2: covid economic activity and unemployment here in California I mean, I, I guess to, to fill in some of the gaps in this debate, and we, we've talked about this intermittently on on this podcast, but the meaningful definition of if this person's an employee rather than a contractor, that might mean, depending on the state and so forth, but it may mean that the employer is required to provide certain benefits or time off or other things of that nature, we think of the gig economy like, okay, you're driving for Lyft, and the idea is, hey, you feel like driving tonight? Just turn your meter on, start getting calls, pick people up, take their fares. You know, you're basically working for cash on your own terms and your own schedule. To many people, that sounds like an independent contractor relationship where there's no one setting a schedule on your behalf or assigning specific tasks. But if it turns out that the voters in California say, we think all those people are employees and entitled to a minimum wage and a variety of benefits or protections that that sur- surely changes that landscape. And yeah, you know, we've seen ideas like this catch on, some of them starting in California, of course.
0: Yes. And um, Uber and Lyft are now considering polling out of California, at least on a temporary basis until that election occurs and perhaps on a longer basis to the degree. That these changes remain in place, their and their cost of business goes up, uh, which likely means both increases on the benefit side for the employees that then the what would then be employees, uh, but also an increase in the cost for writers of those, uh, you know, within the gig economy. So it has a lot of implications that are within California, but also beyond to the degree that it um, remains in place moving through this uh, November election and then
2: begins to spread? Definitely a, I, I guess, foreseeable, but very, very interesting policy wrinkle as, you know, as we see technology is just moving fast. And that means public policy that was built on a framework from, you know, a generation or two or six ago, sometimes has struggles to catch up. And we have an awful lot of laws that are written around terms like employer and employee that we've got to be rethinking.
1: Right. And of course, you know, Uber and Lyft's argument is, hey, we just provide the platform. These aren't our employees. So I find it interesting that this is going to come down to essentially lobbying efforts. And if they're going to spend that much money, it sounds like every commercial is going to be about This ballot question. But that that does bring us to the topic of ballot questions in California. I mean, when it comes to ballot questions, the tradition there, I think, is unlike any other. One huge difference, of course, in the political landscape between California and Maryland is California's tendency to put things on the ballot. I don't want to, you know, make you upset talking about Prop 13. We can talk about that. But can you explain (laughs) how that that process works in California? Because it truly is fascinating, just the number of ballot questions that that get to your constituents every single cycle?
0: Well, we've had the initiative process in California really since the beginning of our history, but it is Prop 13 that was the great beginning of substantial public policy change that occurs at the ballot. And there are, from a county perspective, there are huge winners and losers today that go all the way back to what occurred in 1977, mm. um, leading up to Prop 13 in 1978, um, because much of uh, how we're financed has a trail that's all the way goes all the way back there. So it's a very sore point in in some counties and less so in in others. Um, we our process is actually fairly simple. There's only two pathways to get on the ballot. One is through a two-thirds vote of the legislature, the governor's not involved, um, or through signature gathering, which is the primary venue for much of what shows up on the ballot. And the threshold is fairly high, but bottom line, if you've got two to four million dollars sitting around and a brilliant idea, um, then <laughs> you can get you can get something on the ballot because there are signature gatherers that for. Somewhere between $1 and $4 per signature uh, will hustle in every grocery store and and mall in the state pre-COVID <laughs> to, uh, uh, to uh, get some traction to get something on the ballot. And so there are um, big stakes for the state, also for, for counties in this. Um, in our history, we've run one. One ballot initiative that was about constitutionally protecting our own revenue, um, and that was successful. Um, but try to stay out of it as much as we can because the amount of money that is involved on the pro and con side of initiatives is pretty mind-boggling. Uh, we could easily get to a billion dollars, definitely well over half a billion dollars uh, on the pro and con side just for the November election with. Ah, uh, some of the initiatives that are on there. There's about a dozen that have uh, qualified
2: uh, for the November ballot, and that's not an outlier circumstance for a California election to have, you know, more than a few uh, ballot questions on on the given ballot for one particular vote. That's a fairly common circumstance, right? That's probably. About on average. And of those 12,
0: four come out of the legislature and eight are someone's brilliant idea who is well funded enough to get uh, to get it on the ballot. The spectrum of issues is very, very broad.
1: I want to talk about that a little bit because you mentioned some of these issues. We talked about the app based drivers. Um, I, you know, I'm interested generally, I always look at the ballot questions that are going to come up in California. One that I find interesting, I know you like to stay out of this stuff, but transfer of property tax breaks. I mean, this is about, I think from what I understand (laughs) people being able to, to transfer their tax breaks and take them with them when they sell a house and purchase a new one, that one I would think would affect County governments. I mean, I think there's some stuff for criminal sentencing, rent control, all the, the big ticket items that I think every state's dealing with. But I was particularly interested in, in the transfer. What do, what do you yes. think about that one?
0: So that's an interesting one. We led the opposition two years ago when it qualified via signatures, led it because it created massive losers among counties and was really about fueling real estate transactions rather than um, creating real property tax breaks for the middle income in in California and it is back but it is back via the legislature with some of the players changing sides and our board will take a vote on this in about 2 weeks uh, to determine whether or not we will be engaged in the initiative this time around so there are some you know there's some tweaks to it that are intended to uh, quell our Uh, opposition that we had last time around. And the beauty of going through the legislature is that they get to choose what it is named. And the the name doesn't have to be a perfect reflection of what the law will change. Uh, And so there's um, a great opportunity in terms of the marketing of the initiative uh, this time around that wasn't in place two years ago. It's a huge, huge issue. There are certainly counties that would be winners in that from a property tax perspective, um, but there are many that would be losers in that uh, process as well. And unfortunately, it wouldn't create one new unit of housing, which we so desperately need here in California.
1: Right, and, and you know I, I think you also have a ballot initiative that deals with repealing cash bail and pretrial services. We've dealt a lot with that here in Maryland as well. And like you said, really, it's all over the map when it comes to these ballot initiatives. It it really is a fascinating process out there in California. And, And oftentimes, as you know, when these proposals either pass or are shot down, you know, it sends ripple effects across the country. So I think it's important for everyone to pay attention to what's going on in California. Yes,
0: that's right. So, and you reference a number, there's a split roll property tax initiative that is uh, actually intended to undo a portion of Proposition 13 that you referenced earlier, uh, and some elections focus ones in terms of who's qualified to vote. We also, every, say, four years or so, have something on the ballot that moves strongly in one direction or another related to public safety. And so we in California, we vacillate between a tough on crime and a focus on programming. And so those two things, we bounce back and forth. And so we'll be uh, considering some changes around that uh, this, uh, this year as well.
2: Right. Back to the old three strikes law, which uh, was, was another present, I think, California helped usher <laughs> in for much of, of the United States. We're, we're most grateful for our cleaner cars <laughs> and a variety of things. There are some good
0: ideas, and then there are other ideas.
1: I mean, somewhat related to that, are you seeing, I know we are here in Maryland, are you seeing a lot of topics that really used to be federal issues, but because Congress cannot get its act together to, to do anything, are some of these issues starting to trickle down and get sorted out by your state legislature? I mean again, we are here in Maryland for sure, but I have to imagine that your state is starting to take action because Congress is not able to to get anything done. Are you seeing that in California as well? Uh,
0: yes, and we are in our last weeks of our legislative session, and so they've uh, that has ramped up a bit uh, that's definitely. Um, uh, true around unemployment benefits and the degree to which California will either do something because federal action Will sufficient actually will not occur or will supplement whatever uh, may be done in D.C. It's also economic recovery bond uh, that has been discussed pretty heavily in California that is about stimulating the economy and trying to get things moving again. That has a broadband component to it to try to fast track some of that uh, activity. There's also one thing we were successful in getting this year that – uh, would not have occurred had there been more federal action it's about a billion dollars that we were successful in getting funding the health and human services system, the mandated programs that counties provide that um, would likely not have occurred had there been more aggressive federal action to support the mandated services part of the system um, that counties deliver on behalf of the state
2: yeah, I think that that has that has definitely been. A growing, probably irreversibly growing trend in state legislatures, and my guess is, if we talk to some of our more red state counterparts, they'd find themselves in a similar circumstance, just with a different batch of issues, right? I think
0: that is exactly right, and there is the, you know, the the political question of, well, if you do it at the state level, what's the compelling? If you do at the state level, because action hasn't been taken federally, do you right. basically kill any attempt to ever be successful at the federal level? <laughs> and what does that mean for the states that are not able, fiscally or um, politically, to be able to pull that off? Or are they, they, they then just left out in the cold? So it does sort of force everyone to play ball, um, even though they may not want to be on the team.
2: Well said.
1: So, Graham, you know, before we let you go, I, I do want to get into another issue that we are certainly not facing here in Maryland. You know, this is on top of, of the pandemic. And, of course, your state and county governments, I'm sure, are dealing with budget crises. You're also dealing with a a really, really bad bout of wildfires. And we know wildfires in California, it's not uncommon. But over the past few days, I think, you know, 10,000 lightning strikes over 10,000. You have record heat temperatures. I mean, I think you have close to 400 wildfires right now. And again, you know, when it comes to budgets and, and you know, resources are, are really stretched in right now. But that has got to be, I mean, on, again, on top of the pandemic, that has got to be a huge stressor for the state and for local governments right now. And, and this is a particularly bad season so far, right, in California.
0: It is bad, but it actually is better than it would normally be. It seems way worse because folks are generally at home because of COVID. But we have rolling blackouts because the demand on our energy grid is much higher than it would normally be. We have the heat records that you're talking about, and and um, the that heat and the lightning. A triggering wildfires. And so you have communities where all these things are occurring at the exact same time and uh, having to think creatively about where do people evacuate to when you need to keep some social distancing, when you can't just go, uh, you know, drive an hour and go to a family member's house and then crash with them without having some sort of COVID um, safety plan attached to it. We're actually over 600 fires. There are half a dozen that are more than 20,000 acres. And fortunately, we've only lost about 130 structures, but that's numbers likely to grow pretty substantially. And the highest ever recorded temperature in the world occurred twice this week, and it's 130 plus degrees in Death Valley, California. Um, with lightning strikes and Jeez. that's that's just not a normal thing lightning storms don't happen on a regular basis in california it is an incredibly freak occurrence and we've had many many of them just in the last week as you as you highlighted the state has prime responsibility over many of these areas but we have substantial federal land where it's federal responsibility and a convergence of federal, state, and local land, where you have multiple entities that have a level of responsibility. Uh, Counties are the emergency response authority locally, and so we have a critical role in protecting our community and in doing communication and in working through um, the response. But as I sit on this podcast with you, there is a light drizzle of ash outside my window, and a sky that is uh, an air that is covered in smoke coming from fires both to my east and to my west. And I'm 50 miles away from three major fires that are around. But that's, uh, you know, that's a really challenging place to be uh, when we're juggling uh, all these other disasters. The one thing that I will say is that we have incredible experience Unbelievably talented and dedicated public servants, both the electeds and those embroiled in emergency management, and have a system that works really, really well of mutual aid amongst counties and really across state lines. That is our savior in in terms of being able to navigate through this at this very challenging moment. I can't imagine. <laughs>
2: I mean, 2020 yeah. seems to have dealt us a tough hand anyway, but holy cow. You go big in California, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, you could just say 2020, right? Let's just get out of 2020. One interesting thing, Graham, I read is that, you know, California has a lot of inmate firefighters and because of COVID-19, a lot of those folks were released uh, from jails and prisons and so they aren't necessarily available. So, I mean, has that had an effect on, you know, the, the state's response
0: it's a huge issue because that's a
1: that's a substantial
0: and consistent workforce, particularly in what we call the WUI areas, the wildland urban interface, where we're trying to per- protect communities. They can help establish a line and really protect uh, homes and protect structures from, from burning down. And so we are down in terms of our um, overall capacity, which is which has strained our mutual aid system in a, in a way that uh, we're not uh, as accustomed to. Uh, and so it's required us to, to get more creative and further prioritize where resources are going uh, to uh, have the maximum uh, protection against communities that are in, in extreme peril.
1: Well, I mean, we certainly wish you and your family all the best. I can't imagine, you know, looking out the window, even 50 miles away is, is certainly frightening. Man, what what a what a terrible situation to be dealing with! Before we let you go, Graham, is there anything else that you you want to leave us with? Anything that we haven't gotten into that you think is relevant here today? I think it's
0: it's really important to recognize how incredible the work has been in communities by county leaders all across this country and by associations like yours in Maryland. I have been. Profoundly impressed by county leaders and by um, colleagues such as such as Michael throughout the last uh, several months. This has been the most challenging time in all of our careers, but uh, I remain fully confident in our collective and strategic prowess and in our commitment to holding communities together and for the bottom line of counties, which is a relentless push for reasonableness in a world of uh, uncertainty and and chaos. And so I would want to remind all of us, because if I don't say it out loud, I'll forget to do it myself, to find your therapy, find some way to reset and refuel amidst uh, a marathon year of recurring sprints. And so whatever (laughs) that means, if that's picking up a book, or I like to get on a bike or go out for a run, or whatever it is, find that uh, because it's the it's the way in which we can sustain ourselves and continue to stand up for our community and never forget to be silly.
2: <laughs> I love it. I like to bottle all that. That's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very well put. I don't know if you're a football fan, Graham, but are you thinking 49ers, Ravens, Super Bowl? We've done that once before. Of course, the Ravens came out on top. You have multiple football teams out there. One of them left and and went to Vegas. So so, what are you thinking in terms of maybe Ravens 49ers for for the Super Bowl? If we do football, you know, who knows?
0: <laughs>
1: well, I grew up with the uh, rooting for the
0: 49ers, so I will always root for them. I'll also uh, proclaim their superiority over the Ravens. But I also recognize that there's clearly another story that may be more friendly to your state, and it actually might be more <laughs> factually based. So. I think uh, y'all are uh, positioned well to the degree that uh, there's enough uh, of a seasoned and some competition to get there. I always hope for a squeaker decided on the last play. That is my goal in every, uh, in every football game, uh, particularly when it gets to a championship. And so I hope if we can all be so fortunate as to have a, a workable season that we do
2: land there. <laughs> I, could, I could take that deal right now.
1: Graham, it's been really great to have you today. We really appreciate your time. We know you're dealing with a lot. Michael, any closing thoughts before we let Graham go?
2: I I love the closing message, and it's a a good reality check for those of us who who serve and, and, and try and, and represent local governments that we use those phrases like front lines and, and first responders and so forth an awful lot. Um, it's hard to be any more proud than I think the way we feel about our elected leaders, our professionals and our employees who are, who are responding and finding their best in the toughest of times. So Graham, well said, really great, great way to leave things today. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: All right, we'll go ahead and leave it there. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent to the device of your choice. Of course, you can follow along on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Graham and for Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.